When my oldest son was two, as a family, because we do things as a family, we did things as a family, we watched a Snoopy special, a Charlie Brown special together. In those days, we didn't have um, television, but we had what were called VHS cassettes. Most of you probably don't know what they are. They were rectangular. They were black. And if you put them in what was called a VHS machine, you could watch like a movie or a cartoon. And so we watched a Charlie Brown special in which Lucy sang a song and made everybody sing a song. You know, Lucy, she's like the bossy uh, girl in the Charlie Brown uh, comics. And the song went, Lucy's the boss. Lucy's the boss. So you better listen to Lucy. Listen to Lucy and do what Lucy says. So she sings it to the little Charlie Brown clan. And then they have to sing, Lucy's the boss. Lucy's the boss. So you better listen to Lucy. Listen to Lucy. Lucy's the boss. Lucy's the boss. So you better do what Lucy says. And it's like, boom, you better, you know? So we were in the car and my youngest son was getting really, really bossy. At two, he used to like, I don't know where he learned this, but he liked to sit in the back seat in his car seat and say, go straight, dad. Turn right, dad. Speed up, dad. Make a left, dad. He's only two. I don't, I I don't know where he got that. (laughs) Only he is the child that is most like me. And he would do this, you know. So Brian went, Charlo's the boss, Charlo's the boss, so you better listen to Charlo. Charlo started smiling so big, and he's like, everybody sing it. He's two. And he was so empowered. So then our daughter, Kristen, got a little upset. So we started singing it to her. You know what Char started doing? Wailing. No, no, I'm the boss. He's two years old. I'm the boss. Not Kristen. I'm the boss. So then we started singing, Mommy's the boss. Mommy's, no, not Mommy. And we did it about, you know, daddy's the boss. Oh my goodness. We had like a flaming child in the back. He was so angry. We could barely get him off the edge. We had to just start doing Charlo's the boss just to stop him, just to calm him down, you know, because we were only to Bakersfield and we were on our way to Yosemite. It was bad. Power, prestige, and privilege are lethal to most men, even to a two-year-old. They can be so lethal. John Dahlberg, who was also Lord Acton, said, and you've heard this quote, power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority. Still more, when you super add the tendency of corruption by authority. This truth has been proven throughout history. In fact, we have seen it individually in our circumstances. 
Maybe you had a coworker who was promoted to boss and it changed them. A simple promotion just changed them. And the friendship was broken. Or maybe your, your uh, friend or your neighbor, uh, they came into some money and it changed them. Their personality changed. Their, their priorities changed. And you saw this corruption. The Bible proves this truth when it highlights the kings of Israel and Judah. The first king, Saul, was so humble when he was first chosen. In fact, they had to find him at his coronation because he was hiding, because he didn't feel worthy of the kingship of Israel. But once he received that power, once he was on the throne, he sought to kill David or anyone who threatened his regency. He usurped the role as high priest, offering sacrifices for the army of Israel when he was supposed to wait for Samuel. He disobeyed God and didn't carry out any God who put him as king. He refused to obey the edicts of God. And he sought at the end of his life direction from a witch. Even David, who loved God, became at one point corrupted by the power of being king. He stayed home from a battle. He seduced another man's wife. He had the husband murdered. And he ordered a census in Israel, even though God had prohibited such a thing. And in so doing, brought a plague against the people of Israel. Solomon was so humble in the beginning. When God came to him and said, Solomon, ask what you, what you need, what you want. Solomon didn't ask for riches or for fame. But he asked for wisdom to govern the people of God. There was this humility. But after Solomon felt secure as king, he was corrupted by his many pagan wives. He disobeyed the law of God, which forbid the taking of pagan wives. And not only did he take pagan wives, but he multiplied wives, which was also against the law of God. And these wives turned his heart to idolatry. And at the end of his reign, he became such an oppressive king that the people of Israel begged his son and heir, Rehoboam, to lift the heaviness and the burdens that were on them. Of the 20 kings who ruled Judah after that, only seven sought the Lord. But even these godly kings had imperfections. One made bad and dangerous alliances. One sought the help of man above God. Another was influenced by the wrong people. That would be Josiah, uh, Joash. Another was filled with conceit. We see personal weakness, pride, and rashness in these good kings. Even these good kings, even these godly kings, were not above being corrupted by power, prestige, and privilege. Of the 20 kings who ruled the northern kingdom of Israel, none were righteous. There is not one godly king 
They led the people into calf worship, idolatry, and Baal worship, and they persecuted the prophets. They were notorious for their oppression, their murderous rampages, and for their alliances with ungodly nations. The same holds true for the priests of Israel. They were men and therefore subject to weaknesses and temptation. The high priest on the day of atonement had to first offer a sacrifice for his own sins before he could even offer a national sacrifice for all the people of Israel. Because the priesthood was by lineage, the sons of Aaron, the grandsons of Aaron, and not by election or divine call, you were never quite sure of the character of the child. I mean, we've seen that a lot with, with men who receive their wealth by inheritance and not by earning it, right? You know, because they haven't suffered. They haven't worked as hard as their father. They don't, they don't practice the same disciplines or graces that their father practiced. Practiced. Uh, one example of that is Heinz, the, the ketchup company, the tomato sauce company. Mr. Heinz went bankrupt before he was able to start his, his business again, but he chose to pay off every single one of his creditors. He was a Christian businessman, and he was the first businessman to offer a rest area for his employees, to have doctors and um, a clinic on site, a dental clinic, uh, to offer his, his employees retirement and incentive packages. But he said he took all of his practices from what he learned from the Bible. And he showed such grace and such favor to his employees. But his son did not do the same, nor his son's sons. That's what happens. In Hawaii, the missionaries were so humble. There's uh, a book on the missionaries. It's called Sons of Righteousness, a branch of righteousness. And the first missionaries that came to Hawaii were so humble. And they dressed the women in mumus because the women had these ample bodies. And the pirates that would land in Hawaii were taking advantage of these women. So the missionaries took up their own fabric and they made mumus to cover these beautiful women so that the soldiers would, I'm sorry, the sailors would not take advantage of them. But the second generation began to exploit the people, began to claim the land away from the people. So today when you go to Hawaii and you mention missionaries, most of the Hawaiians, they have a bad taste in their mouth. Not by the first generation, but by the second and the third generation. Eli was, was, a, was a good priest, but he had corrupt sons. Hophni and Phinehas, we read about them in 1 Samuel 2, 12 through 17, that they took bribes, that they seduced the women who came to serve the Lord, and that they made the sacrifice to God abominable and hard, and the people begin to resent having to come to the house of the Lord because of the sons of Eli. So God started again with Samuel. Samuel was a good priest, a godly priest, but we read in 1 Samuel 8, 3, that his sons were not like him that they took bribes 
and they were corrupt. To safeguard against this corruption, God stipulated in the law of Moses that in the nation of Israel, kings would come from the lineage of David, the tribe of Judah, and priests could only come from the lineage of Aaron, the tribe of Levi. This separation, to some extent, was to produce accountability between the administrative and the spiritual offices in Israel. They were given equal authority, and they were to keep each other in check. One, the Aaronic priesthood, was to make sure that the king was godly. And the king was to ensure that the temple was revered and protected. Twice before in Israel's history, the offices of king and priest had combined to disastrous results. In 2 Chronicles chapter 27, we read about a good king, Uzziah. In fact, it says of Uzziah in verse 16 of chapter 27 of Second Chronicles, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. See, there was a time Uzziah was so incredibly anointed as a king. He was a great king. In fact, Uzziah is credited even by the Syrians, ancient Syrians, with inventing the catapult. And the Gatlin, um, the precursor to the Gatlin or the machine gun, he invented a machine that you could rotate and it would shoot out arrows. And the catapults, in the Bible, it, it calls him an inventor of devices. And these devices were known um, as the catapult and the precursor to the Gatling gun. He was amazing. He was successful in all of his endeavors. He was a great gardener. He loved to garden. And so he turned Israel into an agri- uh, Judah, the, northern, uh, the southern kingdom, into um, a very fruitful nation, agriculturally. He was ingenious. He was brilliant. But as he began to feel the success, the prosperity, and the blessing of the Lord, his heart was lifted up, and he said, well, the high priest isn't as godly as I am. I should be the high priest. I'm godlier than he is. I love the Lord more than he does. I study the law. I know the law. And so he presumed to go into the Holy of Holies, into the courtyard and then the temple, and then into the Holy of Holies to offer the national sacrifice for Israel. The priests all gathered around and they tried to stop him. And they said, it's not for you to do such a thing. It's not for you, O king. But he was determined and said, I'm the king. I can do what I want. And as he came near to the Holy of Holies, Second Chronicles tells us that he was stricken with leprosy from head to foot, so bad that he spent the rest of his reign living in seclusion and never able again to enter the court of the Lord. He became even hostile to the Lord 
and had a co-regency with his son, Jotham. Another time that this office was combined, both priest and king, was during what we call the intertestamental period. And that's the time between Malachi and Matthew. This 500, actually 400-year period, after Israel had returned from Babylon, after the exile, when the land of Israel was overrun either by the Seleucids or the Syrian kingdoms or Egypt known as the Ptolemy kingdoms. And it's during this king, this time, that a very evil Syrian king arose whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he profaned the temple by offering a pig on the, on the altar of God. Now, there was a priestly family known as the Maccabeans. And Matthias, who was the head of the Maccabeans, and he was of the Aaronic lineage, was so angry that he took his sons and he went down and he took over the temple. And they held the temple and they purified the temple. And miraculously, the oil stayed so that they could continually, even though there was not enough oil, keep the menorah of the Lord lit. And from that episode, you have what is called Hanukkah, which is a feast that even Jesus celebrated. And you learned that it was as the feast of dedication, which is also Hanukkah. Jesus was at the temple in John chapter 8, or it might have been John chapter 10, but he was there at the temple. So he honored this feast too that we, that of Hanukkah. But what happened is then the priestly family, Matthias was killed, but the rest of his sons, they were able to fight off the Syrians. And for a short-lived time, Israel regained its nationality. And during this time, the grandson of Matthias, John Hycranus, he not only declared himself the priest, but the king of Israel. And when he declared himself king, you know what he did? He took concubines which was forbidden for the priest. He became more and more corrupt. He became oppressive. He then passed on the priesthood and the dynasty to his son, Alexander Janus, who was in a constant civil war with his brother. So Israel was storm-tossed between these two brothers. But at the Feast of Sukkoth, when the water was to be poured down the stairs at the temple to signify or to remind the people of how God had brought the water out of the rock to refresh the people and that the people would be refreshed. And this is one of those feasts that all the men and families of Israel were to come to Jerusalem. And there were thousands upon thousands of people camped out on the hillsides and inside Jerusalem living in little booths. And at this feast, Alexander Janus took the water 
and he poured it on his own feet, not down the stairs. In other words, he was saying, only I deserve the refreshment of God. I am great. I am king and priest. And the people recognized it as a claim to the Messiahship of Israel. And they pelted him with oranges. And what he did is he turned loose his army on his fellow Israelites. And that day, over 6,000 men, women, and children were murdered in Jerusalem in the court of the Lord. Later, because the Pharisees said, you're wrong, you cannot be priest and king. You are not the Messiah. He had 300 Pharisees crucified, and he watched them die while he kissed and fondled and cuddled with his concubines. He was that corrupt. It is from Alexander Janus that Herod arose because he married the granddaughter Marianne of Alexander Janus. And so what we see, even with this, this kingship, this unauthorized merging that eventually went to a Gentile who tried to murder the true Messiah. Only God's Messiah could officiate both offices. According to Psalm 110, it would be the son of David who would be king and priest. Not the son of Aaron, but the son of David. As it says in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. But this son of David, according to verse 4 of Psalm 110, would be ordained from a higher priesthood than Aaron's. He would be from the order of Melchizedek because only the Messiah could hold such power, such prestige, and such privilege without conceit, without corruption, without character change, and without becoming oppressive. Now, as we come, that's a long introduction, but guess what? We're now at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, but by reminder... Throughout, I have that same ringtone. Throughout the epistle of Hebrews, the author has one aim. The great aim of the author of Hebrews is to show the superiority of Jesus, the superiority of our Messiah Jesus to the law, to the sacrifices, to the temple. To the priesthood. The author of Hebrews wants the Hebrews and wants us to know that Jesus is what we have always needed. That Jesus is all we need. And Jesus is everything we need. And he shows this by way of scripture. 
In every chapter of Hebrews, the author has been going back and showing us through the Psalms, uh, through Genesis, through the law, through the prophets, that Jesus is the Messiah we need, that he is the fulfillment, that he is superior to anything else that has ever come. He also proves it by way of potential that no one has done for us what Jesus has done, that no one could do for us what Jesus has done, and no one will do for us what Jesus is doing and will do for us. In this chapter, verses 1 through 17, the author points to the superior order of Jesus' priesthood. And he uses an event in the life of Abraham found in Genesis chapter 14 and a declaration of God found in Psalm 110 verse 4 to prove in the scriptures and the greater potential of this king and priest that we have in Jesus. Concerning the event in Genesis chapter 14, it is a prophetic picture or a foreshadowing of the Messiah that would come. Um, maybe in your groups you talked, you touched on this. Some believe that this event in Genesis 14 is a Christology or an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Others believe it's a typology or a type of Christ appearing in the Old Testament. A Christology is an actual appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. A typology is someone who comes in um, the uh, in the um, prophetic picture of Jesus. This is what Jesus is. Like Jesus is a type. Joseph is a typology of Jesus in that he goes into slavery. He his brothers actually, in a sense, kill him, and yet he. He rises from that pit that he's in for three days and he goes and he takes over a kingdom and he's ruling and they don't even realize it until they're brought in because of starvation, because they're certain death. They have to go and acknowledge his kingship and he shows grace to them and he gives them forgiveness. That's a foreshadowing or a typology of Jesus, right? You've got another typology in David. David comes on the scene. He is the anointed. He kills the giant. But the king of that world, the king of Israel, seeks to kill him. And in a, in a way, David dies and he goes into exile where he's not seen by Israel. But then he comes back and, he, and for seven years, he reigns only over a part of Israel. But after the seven years is over, like a tribulation, he reigns over all of Israel. You've got these different pictures of Jesus Christ all through the Old Testament. No wonder Jesus said in John 5, verse 39, you do search these scriptures because in them you think you have life. But Pharisees, Sadducees, people of Israel, these testify of me. It's all about me. In Psalm 40, he said, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. The whole scroll Everything in the word of God, the Old Testament is all pointing to Jesus. So some say this is actually Jesus Christ because 
Jesus would say of Abraham that Abraham believed in him, saw his day and rejoiced, recognized that this Melchizedek was actually Jesus coming from the heavenly Jerusalem. Others say, no, he's a typology coming from the earthly Jerusalem. Doesn't matter. Whether it's a typology or Christology, oh my goodness, we have so much to learn from this king. So let's get there and quit talking about things that we don't really know, can't be sure of. All right, I'm preaching to myself now. I'll come back to you. But the Old Testament events were not just happenings or just a record of history. The men and women lived out prophetic pictures and proved spiritual principles. They taught us, they guide us, and they prepare us. In 1 Corinthians 10, 6, Paul says, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. And he goes on. These, These are teaching points for us. You know, the Bible is so rich, you cannot exhaust the Bible. Just when you think you know the Bible, God opens another door and says, look at this. You're like, oh my goodness. It's deeper, it's richer, and it all makes sense. It's amazing. So we read in Genesis chapter 14 that Abraham gathers up all his household servants when he hears about four kings that had conquered the southern area of Canaan and taken four other kingdoms captive. So these uh, five kingdoms, these four kings are so powerful, so aggressive, so strong that they're able to conquer five kingdoms. And they not only conquer these kingdoms, they take all of the goods that are found in these five kingdoms and all of the people as captives and slaves. And now they're even more empowered and they're heading back to uh, their homelands. And Abraham, who is now in his 80s, 80s, I'm 58 and I'm not ready to fight anybody. He's in his 80s. He gathers up 318 of his trained servants. Servants. You know, can you bring water? Great. Take this arrow. Can you, you know, can you pitch a tent? Great. Then, you know, pitch the spear. He takes servants and he pursues Five aggressive warload, uh, warload and warlord conquering kings. The odds are way against Abraham. But Abraham wins. He wins. He's leading it. An 80-year-old general is leading just 300 And they're absolutely victorious against these five kings. And not only do they win, but they recover everything that was stolen and the riches of all the five kings who started the conflict. They they get even more 
than what was stolen. And he retrieves his nephew and all the people that were taken. Now, as he's returning victorious from this conflict with his servants, with all the captives, this king called Melchizedek comes out to greet him. This king, Melchizedek, has not been a part of the conflict. And he meets Abraham with bread and wine, elements of a covenant. This Melchizedek is making a covenant with Abraham. And the elements of this covenant remind us of the elements of our covenant. Because Jesus came from God with his blood and body represented by the wine and bread that we partake of in communion. Because Jesus said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, you remember me. These are the elements of our covenant with God. He blesses Abraham. Blessed be Abram of God most high possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of all the spoils of war. Though Abraham refused any of those spoils, he acknowledges that he owes the victory, that he owes everything that's been gained. To Melchizedek. He owes it to Melchizedek. This same priest and priesthood is mentioned in the Messianic Psalm 110, where God declares with an oath concerning the Messiah, the son of David, the Lord is sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Remember, this psalm begins with the son of David. David said, the Lord said to my Lord, verse one, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And that goes on after talking about the son of David. Now, the son of David obviously is going to be divine because David calls him Lord. And and this, I don't have that ringtone. This, This son of David is going to be a priest After a higher order, an order that preceded the Aaronic order. So what is so significant about this priesthood and this order? One, it proves the legitimacy of Jesus' priesthood and kingship. It shows that Jesus' priesthood is superior and preceded came before the Aaronic priesthood, that Jesus' priesthood has been a constant. It is from everlasting to everlasting. Melchizedek's name is significant because he is the king of righteousness. There has been no other king who can make that claim to absolute righteousness, even as we started in the introduction. Even the best kings became corrupt. But this is an incorruptible king. This is a king 
who is absolutely righteous. Melchizedek's kingdom is significant. Verse 2 of Hebrews 7, because he rules over Salem or Jerusalem, whether that is the earthly Jerusalem or the heavenly eternal Jerusalem, we don't know because at this time in the Bible, Abraham didn't know that Jerusalem would someday be the capital of Israel. In fact, that was not known until David became king, that Jerusalem would become so significant. He is the king of peace. But that word peace, again, is the Hebrew word shalom, which doesn't just mean peace. Peace is a part of it, a big part of it. But it means security, prosperity, health, benefit. Melchizedek's genealogy is significant. Verse 3, he does not have a lineage. We're not told who he's begotten from. You know, like it's not Melchizedek, the son of Melchizedek. There's no, you know, and then his son was. Because in the Old Testament, everybody was proven by who their father was or by who their sons were. That's how they were known. Growing up, I was Chuck's daughter, Chuck's daughter. Then I became Brian's wife. And when I go to Northern California, I'm Char's mom. Charlo's the boss, but now he's Char, the artist formerly known as Charlo. I have, a, I have a lineage, and we often use who came before us and who came after us to identify ourselves. Melchizedek in the Bible, which is so, so unique to everyone else, does not have a lineage. In Ezra, these men came and said, we're of the priestly lineage, and they were not allowed to serve because they could not prove their lineage. Interesting, most of the lineages were lost during the um, Assyrian occupation of Israel and the Babylonian occupation of, of Judah when, when everyone was taken captive. Only the tribe of Judah... And some of the tribe of, am I losing you with all this history? Are you okay with this? No? Okay, sorry. Then go, la-da-da, Jesus lives, Jesus lives. I'm going to get to where it applies to us. I am. But that might be 12 o'clock. No, I'm just kidding. We, I will get you out of here in, in 20 minutes at the most. The reason this is significant, too, is because today... All those lineages are lost. Every single lineage was lost when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. Those lineages, which were so significant when the, when the Israelites came back from Babylon, have all been lost. Nobody can prove that they deserve the priesthood. Nobody can prove that they deserve to be the king of Israel. Nobody. All of that's lost. All of that's been corrupted by intermarriages, even if they could DNA it. There's no pure seed. But Jesus is the last one who traced his lineage. Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who could trace his lineage back to David, to the throne of Israel. On both his mother and his stepfather's side, he had the biological right and he had the legal right to the throne of Israel. But Melchizedek, there's no one who comes before him, no one who comes after him. In other words, he is the constant priest. He is the forever priest. He has never been, there was no one who preceded him as priest, and there is no one who comes after him as priest. He reigns forever. He is the eternal priest. It, Abraham significantly tied to Melchizedek, verses 4 through 11. Abraham, who was the patriarch of Israel, because Aaron would come out of Abraham. So Abraham's greater than Aaron because Aaron is, you know, great-great-grandson of Abraham. So Aaron is inside of Abraham, so to speak. You know what I mean? Like your grandfather contained the DNA that's now yours, your great-great-grandfather. So Aaron's inside of Abraham. So in effect, Aaron is paying tithe to Melchizedek. Aaron is acknowledging that the order of Melchizedek is superior to the Aaronic order. Aaron and Abraham are acknowledged their indebtedness too. Even as by our tithe, we acknowledge our indebtedness to Jesus and what he's done. So Aaron was in Abraham tithing, thus acknowledging the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Tithes were only ever given to priests and for the temple. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And according to verse 6 through 7, only the greater can bless the less. Only the one with the greater power. Only the one with the greater gifts and money. You know, it was so hard to bless my dad because my dad had everything. But he was always blessing me with what he had. But, you know, to bless him, I remember one year, my dad loved, loved, loved classical music. And I found these classical CDs and I bought them. And I gave them to him for Christmas. And he opened them up and he said, <laughs> I just bought these for myself last week. Another time I bought him a suitcase. Like he needed new suitcases, was so frayed and everything. And he said, <laughs> I just bought myself a new suitcase. It's like, no, I want to bless you. But I never could. He was always the blesser, always the blesser. <laughs> I remember like one time in my life, I can remember my dad letting me pay for dinner twice, two times out of a 55-year history with Chuck Smith. No, sorry, 50, he died when I was 53. Out of a 53-year history with Chuck Smith, he only let me pay for his food twice. I couldn't, I couldn't bless him. I just had to smile and be a loving, kind daughter, which was super easy because I adored my dad. I, still, I adore him. He's in heaven. He's running around with David and Gabriel. Still adore him. 
It is the one with the power, the authority that blesses the lesser. Abraham had the promises of God. You would think he was the greater one. The one with the promises seems to be the greater. But no, Melchizedek was greater than the one who had the promises of God. He was greater than the one who had the promises. The, verse 11, the fact that such a priesthood is declared in Psalm 110 for after the law. So you understand it's declared before the law is given in Genesis. And now it's declared even after the law is given, showing that the law was not enough. It, it could never bring anyone to perfection. The priesthood of Aaron could never fully forgive our sins or atone for our sins. We needed a greater priesthood. Melchizedek's priesthood is from a higher order, a greater law that predates the law of Moses, which accommodated, verse 12, you see the priesthood of Aaron is an accommodation, not the ultimate. And then finally, we're told that no man officiated from the altar of God except the priest, Jesus, who is after the divine order of Melchizedek, verse 13. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. Sorry, I've got three more points. Melchizedek's order arises from the declaration of God, not from a fleshly command because the law is fleshly. It's meant to govern flesh. This is a higher order, a higher law, a higher command. And it's by the oath of God. It is by God saying, I swear by myself. This is absolute. This is so true. Remember how we were told earlier in chapter six, that when God wanted to show the surety of his promise, he swore by himself that by two immutable things, we might have this confidence. What are those immutable things? The word of God, which cannot change and the oath of God. These are immutable. So this priesthood is greater because it comes by an oath, not by a lineage, not by a heritage. It is superior because it's eternal. It has, again, predates and goes on, and it will be forever and ever. Thou art forever a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is a priest forever, according to the Melchizedek. So, yes, what does this mean to us today? Because next week we're going to talk about the priesthood a little bit more, and it's going to get really good. But this is what it means to us today. And this is what we need to take home. And this is what we're going to need to preach to ourselves. Jesus, by his office as a king, as our king, who is incorruptible, who is righteous, who is eternal, who is good, who is gracious, who is merciful, is able to lead us, protect us, fight for us, defend us, provide for us, and govern us as no other king or sovereign on earth has ever been able to do. He is able to do this, but as priest, 
as our priest, he is able to atone for us. He is able to provide complete and thorough and eternal forgiveness for us. In Mark chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus said that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And they said, he blasphemes because no one has that right by God, but God. And Jesus says, Mm-mm, that you might know that there will be no denial. I have said to this man, your sins are forgiven you. I could have said, just take up your bed and walk, but I want you to know something, that I have authority on earth, an authority that no priest has ever had. They could only cover sins, but I have authority to forgive, to absolutely wipe it out as if it never happened. Jesus alone has this authority, has this power, but he also has this. He alone is able to bring us to God. The high priest could only intercede for God, tell you what God was saying, but Jesus takes us into the very holy of holies, into the very throne room where we appear before God and God says, hello, daughter. Hello, beloved. What grace do you need? What mercy do you need today? Only Jesus has been able to reconcile us and take us right into the Holy of Holies. Something that the high priest could only go alone. But Jesus has brought us in to the very throne room of God. As our high priest, he intercedes for us. Now, the other high priest, he could only guess what was going on. Remember Eli? He looks at Hannah and she's like, because <laughs> it said that she was praying, but only her lips were moving. And he comes up to her and he goes, how dare you be drunk in the court of the Lord? And she says, no, 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 I am not drunk, but I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. And then, you know, by way of apology, he says, okay, then whatever you ask God, it's going to be done. She's like, hey, great. She goes out. He's like, wow, I have a word from the Lord. He's such a bad priest. Sorry. You know, I mean, he didn't know. He misjudged. He misunderstood. Not our high priest. Not our high priest. Our high priest knows our heart. He knows. He knows the motivation in our heart. He knows how good we want to be. Oh, we want to be so good. We want to be so kind. We want to be misfortunate friendly and miss congeniality instead we're miss hiding out or miss miss shy miss embarrassed like I really want to share about Jesus but my mouth won't work he knows our heart he understands us he sympathizes with our weakness he's not like shame on you how dare you no he's like daughter I know because you can only do by my grace. So lean into me. He prays for us. He goes to the Father and says, See, I covered their sins. I adored them. I died for them. I justified them. And he prays in John 17, Lord, I pray for these that you have given me that they might be with me in glory and they might behold the glory that I have and the glory I had before the world was ever made. What a high priest. He can take us all the way into glory. 
He understands us. He prays for us and he knows exactly what we need. Every hour, every moment, he knows exactly what we need. This is the king we need. This is the king. We need a righteous king. We need a protective king. We need an uncorruptible king. We don't want a king that lusts after us or lusts after young women that goes, hey, sweetie, I'll help you. No, we don't want that kind of king. We've got a righteous king that is incorruptible, that doesn't take concubines, that his bride is the is dressed in white and absolutely pure. That's our king. That's our sovereign. He is the king we have always needed. He is the king we need. And he is the king who is everything we need. He is peaceful. He is beneficial. He has order strength, and power to hold everything in line. He is unshakable. He is eternal. He cannot be defeated. He never changes. He is constant. He, you can always go to him and you have access. He is always available. He is greater than Abraham. He is greater than David. He is greater than Aaron. And he is the high priest and the king that blesses us, that desires to bless us. He is the priest we need, the priest that is incorruptible, the priest that is humble, the priest that blesses, the priest from a higher order, the priest that never changes, the priest that is eternal, the priest that is forgiving, the priest who imputes the righteousness, his own righteousness to us. This is the king and priest that God has given to us in Jesus Again, he is the king that we need. He is the priest that we need. Why would we seek anything less? Why? Isn't it interesting? There has not been a priest in Israel since 70 AD. Within 20 to 40 years of Christ's death on the cross, there has been no priest. No one to atone for the sin of any Jew. It's gone. You can't even attempt it. There is no forgiveness in any other name, in any other ritual, in any sacrifice, because there are no sacrifices but Jesus. That is the only way to forgiveness. That is the only way to God. But with Jesus as our king and priest, we are safe, we are whole, we are protected, we are loved, we are tended, we are known, we are understood, we are nourished, we are forgiven, we are blessed, we are glorified, we are sanctified. Why? Why would you want anything less? Why would you look to the law? Why would you look to ritual? Why would you look to your own works? Or any man, when we have Jesus with us always, always, his spirit with us always, Jesus is greater, grander, and more glorious than you realize. We have what we have always needed in Jesus. 
These qualities are not found in anyone else. No one else but Jesus. No one else than the Messiah. And when we when we receive Jesus as our sovereign and high priest, we enter the kingdom of God that cannot be shaken. That very soon, my friends, very soon, as we see the kingdoms of this world fading, corrupting more and more and more, very soon, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Messiah and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. But even now, we can begin to experience the glory, the gladness, the good of being in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Why would we want anything less? Stand up, daughters of the king, stand up. Lord, these are your daughters. May they know the nobility they possess as your daughters. May they know the understanding that they have as your daughters. May they know and experience the deliverance from their sins. That their past, whether hurts or sins, can no longer hold them captive. May they know the redeeming power and freedom they have, no longer captives to sin, but daughters of a king. May they know the grace that is poured out on them as daughters of King Jesus. Lord, may we as your daughters, as those who belong to you by your victory over sin and death, May we enter in to the kingdom even now. May we come to you right into the Holy of Holies and pour out our hearts and our pains and our mistakes and our folly and leave them in the throne room of grace and claim that the cross of Christ is greater. It's greater than all our folly. It's greater than all our sin. It's greater than all the hurts. It's greater because you are king and priest forever after the righteous, after the eternal, after the sworn eternal order of Melchizedek. And we worship and we acknowledge you as our king and priest today in Jesus' name. Amen.